All right. Um, you heard the scripture read this morning already by Hadassah, and so I'm going to jump in. Um, I will say that um, Manohar was supposed to preach this morning, so you're missing him. He did get quite ill when he got back from India, and um, so I'm preaching in his stead, a sermon I had less than one day to write. Okay, so um, in Advent, we celebrate the event of the coming of Jesus, and we look forward to the event of the coming of Jesus. But what that means is, is that the basic mentality of Advent is one also of waiting, and waiting for something we really want to happen that's going to be a lot better than right now. And so in comparison, it's a time of waiting we don't want to do, and in that sense, suffering. Does that make sense? And so whenever you're waiting for something that you think is going to be better, there's the sense in which it feels like the thing is being delayed. Does that make sense? The people who we read about in the story of Christmas, um, we think of them as the people who were there when Jesus came, but they thought of themselves as the people who were waiting for God to come, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. Whenever we live in a moment of delay of any kind, there's usually, there's two, essentially two mindsets that we can have towards it. One is what you might call resignation, a mindset of submissive acceptance of the reality so as to face it and to do our duty in it. And the other is resistance, saying, this isn't okay. I'm not going to submit to this. I'm going to fight this, right? Um, relative to, you can think of it as something that's, imagine a, uh, like a major purchase that you're going to make, and you're concerned about the price, but you want to buy the thing, right? After you buy the thing, how often do you think about the price? Right? You see, if you, if you made what you feel like was a good purchase, hopefully after you buy that thing, you never think about the price again. If you make what you might consider a bad purchase, you'll be kicking yourself about the price for a long time. Okay? If you never think about the price again, that's resignation. You're like, this is what it costs. This is what I'm going to pay. I pay it. I have it. That's what I wanted. That's what it is. There it is. Okay? You're resigned to the cost to get the thing that you wanted. Okay? Resistance is like being like, oh man, I wish I could have bargained it down further. Maybe I should have waited. If you're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you're not resigned. Your mind or your heart is resistive to the thing that you did. The thing that has a cost, but that you wanted to avail yourself of. Does that make sense? So sometimes the attitude of resistance is noble and resignation is sinful. So for example, if there's an injustice that we should resist, then resigning ourselves to it is actually cowardice, and it's not an act of nobility. Similarly, if you resign yourself to some infirmity or sin, or some situation in your life that you are supposed to fight in God's will, that's also a sin. Like if I just say, well, you know, I have this sin I always do, but I need to just resign myself to it because that's a Christian virtue. That's not a Christian virtue! Not in that sense! Right? If you're like, well, I just have a crappy marriage. I'm just going to accept it. Well, yes, accept it in the sense that you hang in there, but not accept it as like, leave it that way right? Not all resignation is the same thing, nor is all resistance. Does that make sense? In fact, the best resistance is one that flows from the right kind of resignation, right? There's this injustice, and if I fight it, they might kill me. I might lose my good name. I might lose my job. I'm resigned to do whatever I have to do for the right. It's okay. So I can step out in resistance. But now I will step out in resistance much more nobly. My actions of resistance will be more noble, more clear. I'll know what my purpose is. All good protest or resistance of the ills of the world first starts best with the right kind of resignation. In that sense, good resignation precedes good resistance. Otherwise, what you see is people who are fighting the world, and they're angry, and they're anxious, and they're double-minded, and they're violent, and they're— 
They're not like Jesus. Jesus was full of resistance, right? His whole life is full of resistance. And yet, it came from the most ordered resignation. Because he submitted to all the right things, he knew how to fight all the right things. Does that make sense? Because it, like, if you don't, what happens is you say, well, I'm going to be a person of resistance. Okay, great. Well, so long as you resist the right things. But <laughs> resistance in your heart as a disposition, it also like, it divides your mind, it poisons your soul, and it fills your heart with resentment. And none of that leads in the right direction. Does that make sense? And so you can see this in a number of places in the Bible, but one place in James, he says it like this, about asking for wisdom from God right? Are you resolved to ask God for wisdom, and do you believe God is for your good, right? He says, listen, if you ask but you doubt, that what that means is you don't have a view about God. He says, he who doubts is like the wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, you see the point here? Sometimes it makes it, it makes it sound like, we read that for James, and James is like, James is Mr. Resistance, right? And so he's, he's like, he's like in your face, and he's like, and you think, oh man, he makes God sound really touchy about asking for wisdom. But that's not it. You see, wisdom comes from resignation to who God is. Right? The fear of the Lord, the recognition of what God is, is the beginning of wisdom. You come and you ask God for wisdom. You're like, God, I want to be wise, but I don't know if you will give me wisdom. Well, the, one of the first acts of wisdom is to know that God is good, i.e. wise, wants to give wisdom. He is generous. If you can't believe that much, you can't believe any further than that. You literally can't access wisdom because you're too double-minded and too unstable to become wise. I mean, we think of people as people who are wise, they have like a stability about them, right? Like very few people go, oh, that person's wise. His life, is all, his life is all over the place, but he's very wise, right? Or he doesn't know what he thinks about anything. He goes back and forth, back and forth, but he's really wise. Nobody thinks that. Wise people are, by definition, not double-minded and stable. And they position themselves to receive from the Lord because they're willing to be taught because they have a stable, resigned view about God and His will. So if you're going to come to God for wisdom, James says, you have to come to Him believing that He's generous towards you with wisdom, that He gives the very thing He says He cares about, and that He personally embodies, that He's proud of Himself and wants to share who He is with you. And if you can't believe that much, you have no capacity to make— to, begin to stack the building blocks of wisdom because you are com too committed to something other than God and who he is to be single-minded enough to grow in wisdom and to be stable enough to grow in wisdom. You have to be resigned, right? Um, one of the ways to think about this is res resignation is the faith to receive God's inscrutability. I know that's really easy to understand, but scrutability is Latin for searching something out. So the idea that God, particularly in his will, but also in his character in a way, is inscrutable means you can't just say, well, I'm going to search this thing out and expect to succeed. You might find a lot, but you can't search out the whole thing, right? So like if you, if you buy a new house or you're going through a house and you're, you're deciding whether or not to buy it, in theory, that house is scrutable. You could take the time to look everywhere at everything. Most people don't. They hire an appraiser, but the appraiser's supposed to, like, look at everything, right? And that's supposed to happen so you really know what you're getting, okay? But you could imagine a building large enough that you could never search it all out. You could never really know what you were getting. You could search the important parts, some of the things you cared about, but not all of it, right? And God's will is like that. It's inscrutable. Like, you can try to search it out. It's not going to work. So the question is, if God's will is unscrutable, then what's your relationship to it going to be? 
if you can't search it out and there's stuff about it you don't like, what kind of attitude are you going to have, right? It's going to be one of two attitudes, resistance or resignation, right? Um, Paul in Romans 5 points out that Jesus is like a second Adam. That through the first Adam, sin and death came into the world, and through the second Adam, this second archetypal man, um, sin was destroyed and salvation brought to all men and women who would believe, right? That, um, that God gave a second Adam. That some people have said, and the, and the Bible doesn't actually literally say this anywhere, but that in some ways Mary becomes a second Eve when she says to the angel, I'm the Lord's servant. Let your word be fulfilled to me the way you've said. That when she is given the will of God, that she doesn't entirely understand, that she can't fully predict what's going to happen, that she doesn't choose for herself, and it comes to her by the direct will of God outside of her authority, and she has to decide whether or not to receive it, she says yes. Whereas her greater mother, because she's a daughter of Eve, her greater mother said no. She was asked to wait for God's will in terms of how she would receive the knowledge of good and evil to play out. And she was unwilling to wait. She's unwilling to receive it the way God wanted to give it, in the order he wanted to give it, according to his will that she didn't know. That is, God's will was what? Inscrutable. She couldn't search it out. And the serpent used it as a means by which to convince her that she needed to reach out and take it. She needed to what? Resist. And so her attitude of resistance led her out of the will of God towards her own will, which was contradictory to the will of God, in direct disobedience, and turned her heart away from God towards what she wanted and separated her from God. Mary did the exact opposite. The the will of God was still inscrutable. She couldn't search it out, but she trusted God. She believed the angel when he said, for nothing is impossible with God. So she believed, if God is for me, who can be against me? If I can trust God— to be for me, then I can forget about me and I can be for God. And so she, in resignation, said, I'm the Lord's servant. Right? You can see this also relative to Moses, right? Moses was given a call to do something. And Moses made so many excuses. He was like, I don't think so. Because he, God's will was inscrutable, but he thought he understood God's will. I'm going to go back to Egypt. They're going to kill me. Like, he, he thought he knew what was going to happen. Mary also probably thought she knew it was going to happen. She, she knew that Joseph was going to break off the engagement. She knew that she was going to be, like, under a cloud of shame. She knew that her life was going to go nowhere, and it was already going nowhere because she already lived in Nazareth. She knew all that. It's not like she was dumb. She had no foreseeing power. She saw all that, and so did Moses. Right? And so Moses is like, I don't want to go. I don't think I can do it. I'm not good at talking. And God has this like long debate with Moses. Like, okay, but you're— and, and, and what does God keep saying to Moses, basically in different ways? Nothing's impossible with God. I don't speak well enough. Do you think maybe I could help with that enough? Like, or Moses, he's not going to believe me. You don't think I can do signs and wonders sufficient to persuade the Pharaoh? I don't want to do it. Well, I'll give you something to go with you, but you're going. Like, it's, it's like over and over and over. It's like, it's like talking to a teenager. It's like, it's like the whole—everything you say is, is like an inv- invitation to be argued with, right? And, and like, this is Moses, like the father of faith. 
Like this is, this is like one of the pinnacle people in the history of God because once he gets it, once Moses does resign himself to God's will, he lives in that divine resignation the rest of his life, except for a couple of episodes. Right? But you see, here's the thing about Mary. I was, I was thinking about this, like, why do I think my Catholic and, and like Russian Greek Orthodox neighbors have kind of gone overboard with their veneration of Mary? And it's like, I think a part of it is she's kind of a minor character in the Gospels. She's not even in a couple of them, basically. And then she shows up like in the infancy narratives a little bit, and then she's at a wedding, and that's like basically all there is until she's one of several Marys later in the Gospels and at the foot of the cross. Like she's like a minor character, but she's like a major figure, right? That's kind of the dichotomy of it. Like one of the reasons why Mary's such a minor character is she's like a no drama llama. Like there's there's no there's no story to tell with Mary. It's Mary's just like on point from the first moment. It's like okay. Okay, Mary, this whole thing's going to happen. I don't know what you think about this. I don't know if we're going to have to spend time. It's not like the story of Gideon was Let's lay some fleeces out and let's do some things to see if this is God's will. You get like a whole story about Mary figuring out if it's okay. And no, Mary's just like, okay. I mean, you almost wonder if like, like when the angel left her, if he left her bewildered. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like Gabriel's like, that's one of the first people I ever told anything to. And they just were like, okay. I mean, I just talked to this 80-year-old priest who's been following God his whole life and praying for a son. And I told him, you're going to have a son. He's like, I don't think so. And I show up with this girl in the middle of nowhere who has no education. I'm like, hey, you're going to have a child without a father. And she's like, okay. I'd scheduled two hours for this. I didn't think that was going to be that funny. Okay. Um, What a lot of people in the history of church have called this is divine resignation, which is the acceptance of God's will as the highest good to which everything else must submit, especially our wills to his. That this in some sense is what faith looks like having believed. So faith entering a relationship with God looks like repentance and belief. I was wrong. God, you were right. Please forgive me. I accept Christ's death and resurrection on my behalf right? What we call justification. Sometimes it's in shorthand we say salvation because it's the entrance into salvation, right? But what does faith look like, right? So faith looks like the ability to admit that you're wrong and accept what God has done on your behalf, right? That's God's past actions in a will for your life. What happens when you enter in? Now you've believed in Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. You're in. Now what does it look like? And what it, look like, what it looks like is a life of worship, which means— knowing the will of God, and doing it. And so the only way that can happen at all when the will of the God you're serving is inscrutable is for you to believe on the basis of the person and categorically that God's will is worth doing. And even though you can't see what God is doing, you can still do what you know is part of God's will. And that includes submitting whatever part of your will doesn't want to do that to his will. That's what faith looks like. Um, the leader of the Counter-Reformation, which is kind of a villain in churches like ours, but also, like, by trying to reform the church as well, uh, Ignatius of Loyola wrote, like, a system of spirituality in it. And it, one of the—when he talks about this as the first principle of pursuing God in holiness, he says—I I've, I've paraphrased this into modern, don't make me think too hard English, okay? He says, God created humans to know and love him. All else in creation, that means everything God has created outside of that, is for that end. 
that human beings would know and love God, right? So we must use creation as a gift to serve the greater end of growing in the life of God. This end, that is us growing in the life of God, and not any circumstance we find ourselves in in creation, must be our great aim. See what he's saying? He's saying whatever else is in creation, all of that was created by God as a gift. And it all serves the end of what the humans are meant to be. And if that happens, then the humans will then serve creation the way they should. In relationship. But, he said, you have to get straight the first principle, which is, you were made to know and love God. Anything in creation can be used or experienced such as to direct to that end. So if you get down further in the rule, he says this. So therefore, in principle, as Christians, we don't prefer riches or poverty. For both could be used for us to further the end of the life of God in us. If riches, then in generosity. If in poverty, then in trust. Or sickness and health. Neither is to be preferred. If in health, then fruitful labor to do God's will in all the ways that we can with the strength that God has given us. If in sickness, demonstrating and experiencing the worth of God in the midst of our pain, so as to demonstrate that we are willing to believe in the midst of hardship, and so on. In every different situation the human can be in, even opposite ones, Loyola says, neither are to be preferred. For all can be used to the one great end and aim, which is that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that we would grow in the life of God, that we would learn to walk with the Spirit. And in that sense, we can be resigned. Now, does that mean you can't try to make any money? No. Does it mean you shouldn't take care of your health? No. What it means is, is that fundamentally, nothing is to be preferred relative to this greater aim, for God's life can grow in us if we combine faith and resignation in any situation. Puritan William Bates, just to flip it on the far other side of the Christian tradition, said it this way. He said, the, the entire resignation of our wills to the disposing will of God is the indispensable duty of Christians under the sharpest afflictions. There's some key words in there, right? I could have used this as a sermon outline, but I was too unrelenting. Okay, that is the entire resignation of our will, not part of it, but all of it, right? The disposing will of God means this. You, there are, in some ways, two wills of God. Calvinists say the disposing will or the decreed will. I sometimes refer to it as the secret will of God. That is, God has a plan he's working out that you don't know and I don't know, and we're not going to know it. The will of God that we do know is his revealed will, what he's told us to do. That is what, what Puritans would have called the, the will of God's law. That is, he, the stuff he told us to be doing. The point is, is that we need to let go of thinking we can control the disposing will of God, or the secret will of God, or the decreed will of God. We don't know that. And if you can really let that go in resignation, that that belongs to God, and that it is for your ultimate good, and that's all you can know, then you can turn your whole will to the, the will of the law of God, or God's revealed will, what we are in fact called to do. And he says this is indisp an indispensable duty, meaning you can't live a biblical or real Christian faith without it. It's indispensable. And it, and it works even under the sharpest afflictions. There's no level of affliction at which you can say, well, this doesn't count. This is a man who wrote this under a constant death of being killed by all the changes of kings and queens in England, where Puritans were constantly under the possibility of losing their livelihood, being thrown out of the church, or being killed. And he was a nonconformist, meaning he was not on the right side. He was just on God's side, says the Protestant. 
you can see this. And so when William Bates preached this as a sermon, this was his text. He said, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then a few verses later, he says, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. See, those verses are actually different. He didn't pray the same thing twice. He says, look, if it's not possible, unless I drink it, then your will be done, meaning I will drink it. Do you see the divine resignation there? He sees the terror. He sees the fear. He sees the sharp affliction, and he is resigned to do the will of God. Not just because God has power and can pound him into the dust and make him do it, but because he believes he is part of a better participation for facing that work, such that he saves the world. But that rational will has to triumph over the sensual will of the terror and horror of facing suffering. He says it this way in John. This, this isn't going to work. Okay. He says, he says to his disciples, so like they went into town, they bought a bunch of food. He talked to a lady about the Lord, about the, about the Father, and about what salvation looks like. And they come back and they're like, hey, do you want something to eat? He says, I have food that you know nothing about. And more literally, meat to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought food? My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see the idea there that Jesus, what's, what's the most necessary thing for human existence in life? What's the thing you can't do without to exist even as an organism? Right? And the, and the answer is food. And you see what Jesus is trying to say, he's saying, listen, the will of God is so foundational to me. I'm so resigned to it. It's so absolute in how I see myself. It's like food. It's substantial like meat. Like you can't, my whole will, my, myself, I am ordered towards to do God's will and to finish his work. And he's, he's teaching that not because we're just learning something about Jesus. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. Right? And so that's why when Mary says it, she is one of a line of believers who had this sorted out. That no matter what she was waiting for, no matter how much suffering she knows this new word is going to create in her life, she says, listen, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me like you said. She's completely divinely resigned to do the will of God and subordinate her will that would just naturally disagree with it, okay? So any kind of fruitful waiting, like in Advent or like right now, requires divine resignation. It is an indispensable duty of faith. Now, that may feel like a hard thing, but let me—I just I want to tell you this. There are some hard things that are the gateways to many beautiful and good things. And so what I want to give you quickly is four really good, really beautiful things that this is the gateway to, to encourage you. Okay? Because God, God does no good for himself with us that he doesn't radiate and give back to us as a good for ourselves. Right? All of his will works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, okay? So the first is, is that you'll have more relish for your real life. You'll have more relish for your real life. Um, there was a time I thought I was going to be the, one of the greatest human beings ever to exist because I was, I'm intelligent and I have ADD and multitasking was kind of a hit. And I was like, this is going to be great because I'm smart, and my mind already multitasks on everything, so I'm going to accomplish more than everyone, anytime, ever in the history of the world. <laughs> and then we found out that that whole thing was a, a like a, a falsehood, 
okay, that multitasking only works if you're doing one thing that is 100% completely mindless, and then your conscious mind can be, so mowing the lawn and listening to a podcast, that works. Cleaning your basement when you don't know where everything goes and listening to a podcast does not work, okay? You find out two hours later, you're still holding the same hammer, and you're like, where does this go? Right? It doesn't work because you have to think about both. Shut the stuff off. That's why you, we listen to music, listen to music. We do a lot of stuff that takes part of our brain power. We think it helps me. It does not help you. Okay. Similarly, when we think that we're participating in faith because we believe in Jesus, but we have not taken that faith to confront ourselves to move in the direction of real divine resignation, truly subordinating our will to God's will then we remain of two minds. We want to buy the car, we don't want to buy the car. We're in, we're not in. We've got two masters, we've got two minds, and it's exhausting. And it breeds resentment, that is unhappiness, and it also breeds idleness. We don't put our hand to the thing that's in front of us to do. And because of that, it drains the relish or the taste or the enjoyment, the, the, the grabbing up and holding and squeezing out of life. Because you're not single-minded in the thing you're supposed to do right in front of you. You're thinking about that, but you're thinking about how you shouldn't have to do it. You're thinking about the situation you're in, but how the situation shouldn't exist. You're thinking about how, like, how God wants you to do something, but God shouldn't make you do something. And you're back and forth. You're back and forth. You're back and forth. You have multiple minds. And because of that, you're not—you don't have any integrity. You don't have any singularity. You don't have any concentration. You don't have any directness. You don't have any focus. You see, resignation produces focus. God is for me. I don't have to worry about that. I can just be for him. One thing. Right? And it, put, it takes away the resentment. This thing that you're called to isn't beneath you because the whole point is to grab up the thing that's in front of you in your stewardship and duty and to do it such as to bring about the life of God in yourself and to love your neighbor and to be thankful towards God. And, you, and that's what you're doing. It's straightforward. And— you're not idle. You're not one, you're, you're, you're looking for the right thing to put your hand to under the will of God. And so you'll do something. And so you'll do something with a singular mind, knowing it's exactly what you're supposed to be doing right now. In fact, one of the things I had to do when I was, I was struggling with like anxiety that was making it so I couldn't work a few years ago, is I had to sit in my office chair and say, is this the, the thing I'm doing now the thing I'm supposed to be doing right now. Because I'm thinking about my home life. I'm thinking about this thing at the church. I'm thinking about this other problem. I'm thinking about this person we have conflict with. I'm thinking about all these things that are all part of my world, and they're all in, invading, let's say, my sermon prep, right? And I, I had to stop and say, okay, right now at 2.46, am I supposed to be writing a sermon? Okay, yes. Am I supposed to be doing any of these other things? Can I do anything about any of these other things? Whose hands are these other things in right now? And the answer is not mine. God's in the most general sense. Okay, so mind, heart, soul. This is all I have to do right now. This thing. I might as well enjoy this than be tortured by these. Right? And so divine resignation, when applied in your life, actually has the incredibly positive benefit of giving you more relish for your actual real life. Okay? 
The second thing is, I don't have time for all that, though it's really helpful, <laughs> is you'll have more resilience in your source of joy. So we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but these, these folks who were having children at weird times in difficult circumstances wrote worship songs in how good they thought God was being to them. They hung in there in some of the most critical moments. And here's the thing about life as well, is that all these joys that they experienced were simultaneous with a lot of negative things that happened to them. One of the, one of the saddest is um, in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, right? So he's circumcised, and they make the offering of two doves, which is what, what you would offer for your firstborn son if you were very poor. And as they're coming out, nobody knows who they are, but these two really old nobodies recognize Jesus, okay? So they're like, this is sort of like the— besides in Leviticus when it says, uh, stand up in the presence of people with white hair, this is like—these are like the pro-old people verses of the Bible, right? Like these people are both well over their 80s. They're literally both waiting around to die. That's literally the context. They're just like, man, I wish I could just die, but I'm just going to wait around until the Christ child comes, right? And so they see Jesus, and they come come over, and he's like, listen— this is, this child is going to be so great. And right, he says that in front of a bunch of people. And Mary and Joseph both are like marvel at the amazing thing Simeon says Jesus is going to be, right? And then it says, and then he spoke to the child's mother and said, this child is going to order the rising and falling of many in Israel. He's going to be a sign that, that people will speak against and it will be a stumbling block to them. And your guts are going to be run through with like a sword you are going to be personally impaled as a mother on the pain of what you're going to experience. I'm just—this is this Nick's Amplified Bible, right? Like, because he says, right? And a sword will pierce your own heart, too. Oh, that's nice poetry. The poetry is supposed to be evocative, y'all. Like, it's supposed to be like Mary, and the sword's like stuck through her chest and heart, and blood spurting everywhere, and her screaming in pain. Right, we've heard these stories too many times with no imagination, okay? And that was right after, your child's going to be so great. Everybody's going to be better off. He's going to be fantastic. And Mary and Joseph are like, hold each other. Oh, we're going to be so proud. He's like, listen, Mary, imagine a sword going through your chest and blood flying everywhere. That's how it's going to feel to be the mother of this man. The thing about this is, is that, you guys, the worst things in your life and the best can happen like 10 minutes from each other. Right? Like, people ask me, like, how's it going? And I'm like, it's going everything at the same time, okay? That's how it's always going. (laughs) Right? Like, everything's always happening at the same time. Like, you can literally have some huge positive thing happen, take your coat and umbrella, and like, in two seconds, you're getting your guts torn out by some other thing. It's just what life is like. And you see, listen, if— you are not divinely resigned. You will be up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. Right? But if you have some divine resignation, you can relish the happiness and you can receive the down as part of the will of God. So that when things are great, you are triumphing in the resurrected power of Christ. And when things are terrible, you are suffering with Jesus in the way of the cross. You are in the will of God. You're in it all the time. And so that not only can you be happy in normal life, which is point one, which is bad enough that we can't even be happy when things are fantastic, but what it also means is you have the capacity in God to actually desire to suffer for good purpose. 
There's, there's a sense of res- resigning yourself to the will of God where you would be disappointed for your life to be truly just the American dream. That you got what you wanted, you had a nice house, you drove the vehicle you liked, you had a nice set of solar panels, you know, you ate what you thought was like the right kind of protein, you had some people that came over to your house and you like sniffed beverages before you drank them because you have a refined palate and you wore nice clothes or, you know what I mean? Like whatever your thing is, it's like your little diversion, right? You'd be like, you know, it's all just, you know, the Packers win every year or the Cubs. That would be real, right? And like, (laughs) and and like your life just kind of just goes like that. And like, there's a point in divine resignation where you're like, if that was what happened and that was all that happened, that would be an enormous disappointment. Like there's there's this point where you're like, I kind of want something to happen. Not for anybody's ill, but like, It's kind of like the guy who, like, doesn't really want to hurt anybody, but kind of wishes at some point he was there when some woman was getting attacked so he could fight the guy. Like, he he doesn't want violence, but he he wants to use his strength to do something good. It's why little boys used to play with guns when they were little. It was because they were like, well, let's kill nice people. It was like, no. Like, I imagine I live in a world where somebody has to defend somebody, and I'm pretending I'm the knight. I'm the soldier. I'm the person who steps in and does the good at great danger. Because built into the, like, the fabric of our, our, our childhood selves was not that we'd have a bunch of stuff and everything would be easy, but that, like, we would be engaged in some thing that required courage and that made us into a new kind of person and that was something nobody could ever forget. Right? And I think without divine resignation in this consumerist culture, we will live the most forgettable, boring lives. Safe from difficulty and people's problems. And you see, when divine resignation comes, not only can you be happy in ordinary things, you can embrace, you can embrace the stake and enjoy it and thank God for it and love the people you're with, but you can also face the sharpest kinds of pain, embracing them even wantonly if you believe they are the will of God. And so, like, because of this, this is why people for centuries, like, embraced martyrdom. They lived in the desert or caves so that they could get rid of distractions so that they could pursue God. It let people to face down kings and princes, adopt babies from garbage dumps, befriend Bears fans, pursue justice or works of mercy in the context of inhumanity. It caused believers to remain with pagan neighbors during plagues, to fight just wars, to enter vocations of profound service, to become missionaries that took coffins with them among their belongings to where they went. It led believers to fight for abolition twice in the history of the West, well, in the third time now, to report the injustices and barbarity of imperialists, to stand up and love cannibals, to go to tribes that had, that had killed their husbands, to be burned at the stake rather than recant or- orthodoxy. It led Puritans to leave their country twice to find religious freedom, and circuit riders to sleep in the wilderness with bandits so they could preach the gospel to the West. In the book of Ephesians, which, or I'm sorry, of um, Hebrews, which goes back a little further than that, at the end of chapter 11, the chapter on faith, it talks about people who were, who were triumphant in God's power, usually 
in the midst of lives of profound suffering. He says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fiery flames of the furnace and escaped the edge of the swords, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And then he changes his emphasis, still speaking about the triumphant heroism of those fully resigned to God in faith, saying, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made fully complete. Right? The third thing, which I'm not going to talk about because I'm out of time, is you'll show more resistance to corruption. When you give yourself to the will of God, worldliness takes hold less quickly, less strongly. You see things for what they are, distractions for what they are, and you're not as easily grown up around and choked. Right? That's all I have time to say about that. I had like a whole 20-minute thing on that. It was going to be fantastic. And then the fourth thing is you'll participate in restoration. So there's, there's four R's if you want to go back and look at the slides later. Um, there's this verse a little bit before the, the verses about Mary where it's talking about John the Baptist. And the angel says this, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I've heard a lot of people talk about revival and how they hope that in our lifetimes, God will not just bring about the end of certain injustices, but will actually lead great masses of people to believe in Jesus the Christ and be saved in their relationship with God. And I want that too. And one of the questions is, what precedes such things? And, and there are certain answers that are also true, like oftentimes prayer. Actually, us, our hearts coming around to really wanting it for some other reason than just ourselves, and to alleviate the pressure on us being a, a religious minority. But it's interesting what the angel says will prepare people for the Lord. He says two things. The first is, is he says, the first thing that will prepare people for the Lord and make possible a real revival when the Lord comes is the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. You see that? The hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. Now think about this. Any human society will flourish or be diminished by what fathers decide to do. Not because mothers aren't important, but because mothers are so bound to their duty, it's harder, harder for them to escape it. Men are the more independent ones in a strange biological way. And the question is, what will they do? Without divine resignation, they're prone to do one of two things relative to their children. The first is to abandon them. To simply not be fathers. To walk away. To feel ill-used just because they had to pay some child support, you know? The other is to be a father and resent your children for not being thankful enough because they're big jerks. Because it turns out, children are often immature. 
And so without profound divine resignation, real faith in the will of God, fathers will go in one direction or another, which is, which is the same for both. Their hearts will turn away from their children, which is a metonymy that is one thing standing for the whole, of the whole of a society of human beings. Our hearts turn away from each other. Because if a, heart, if a father's heart turns from his child and will not turn back to it, love is incapable in a society in terms of its broad profoundness. The starting point and ending point where it must begin and out of which from which it flows, those who must lead is a father has to figure out how to turn their heart, not their wallet, not their mind, not their yelling, not their logic, but their heart toward their children so that their children can actually receive the love, approval, and interest of their father so their wife's heart can turn towards them because most wives who are really angry at their husbands and have a hard time loving them are angry about how their husband is treating their children and feel like their heart isn't really turned. They're there, they pay for the stuff, they do the things, but their heart isn't really turned towards them. And that is the fundamental leverage of all things. Somebody's heart has to turn towards somebody else. Love must precede the revival of love. <laughs> and you see, I mean, forget about whether or not you're going you're gonna, to like build a casket and go someplace to die for Jesus. Like, especially if you're a man or a father, one of the first things of divine resignation is like, can we, whether or not our, their kids will turn their hearts towards us, can we turn our hearts towards our children? Either to actually be there for them rather than abandon them, or in how we look at them and how we treat them. And the second is that to see disobedience as not just an unwillingness to do what's right, but as a recognition that disobedience always has built into it a profound ignorance. He says what has to happen is that the disobedient have to be brought not to church, which should happen, or not like, but he says this, not, and not just to righteousness. He says, but the disobedient have to be brought to the wisdom of the righteous. That is, that the righteous have to live in such a way as the disobedient don't just see that they're bad or wrong, but they see that they've been living in a kind of ignorance. That their folly, that they're so self-assured in, is stupidity. And that not only it will produce what's wrong, but the logic by which they're like, I know more than my parents. I know more than this whole society. I know more than anybody. I can like this. This is just like, I, like I'm above all that. And then you find out that really you saw this, and you thought you saw more than them, but they really saw this much. And there is a wisdom of the righteous that not even the righteous know, because if you, if you obey the laws of the Lord, it makes the simple wise, right? So you, you can be an idiot, know nothing about reality, but just do what God says, and it looks like you're wise. But what God is saying is, is that what needs to happen is the disobedient need to be brought into the wisdom of God, which is that we would study the Lord to know what we can of his revealed will and what he's shown of his secret will, such that we would not just try to be righteous, but have in our minds and be able to articulate the wisdom of righteousness, to invite people to a larger, more capacious view of our existence, and to invite them into something worth doing, so that we don't live boring lives, so that we live our lives with relish, so that we are less corruptible, and so that we participate in redemption. And none of that happens. There is no fruitful waiting without divine resignation. In that sense, we need to be like our Savior before the cross, not just after. Let's pray. Lord, um, 
I pray that um, people will have found something in that to use for faith, to turn to you, to pray about, to think about, to use in response to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.